welcome to all of you. Uh, my name is Trevor, and it's just good to be with you on the other side of the new year. If you have a Bible, would you take some time right now to find John chapter 12? Uh, John chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are in person and those of you who are online. We have uh, finished, la last year as a church, we uh, were in the minor prophets as we hit the, as we were in the fall, and that was all in preparation for Christ's coming. The minor prophets look forward to Jesus. And then we were in the Advent season where we were anticipating and waiting for Christ to come, and then we celebrated Christ's coming. Uh, last week we celebrated Epiphany, even though Epiphany was just a couple of days ago, which celebrates that the light of God has come into the world in the person of Jesus and extends to the whole world, that Christ is not just for some, but that Christ is for everyone. And now we are in the life of Jesus. Once again, we as a church are back in the words and life of Jesus. And we have been walking through the Gospel of John each year, and we'll pick up where we left off, which will be in John chapter 12. The last time we were in the Gospel of John was right at Palm Sunday. And so the text that we will look at this morning will pick up from Palm Sunday and will continue forward. So I've talked for a little bit. I've set the stage a little bit about where we are at as a church. And now um, if you've had time to find John chapter 12, either in a physical Bible or maybe in some sort of Bible app you have, we will be in John chapter 12. Would you follow along with me as we read John 12, verses 20 through 36? John chapter 12, 20 through 36. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. 
And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from among them. John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. This is the text that we will be in. This is where we anticipate that God will speak to us this morning. I want to talk for a moment about how timing is everything. You've heard that phrase, I'm sure. Timing is everything. Um, one of my favorite dad jokes that I like to tell my kids, right, is uh, what's the most important thing in a good joke timing? Uh, not everybody laughs, as none of you did, but trust me, it's, it's, a, it's great. Timing is everything. In the year 2000, a young, small company struggling to stay afloat called Netflix. At that time, a company that was largely known for sending DVDs in the mail to people who were interested in watching a plethora of different movies was, was struggling as a company, and they had a meeting, a sort of last-minute meeting with a company that they had desperately wanted to meet with. They were given a short window of time to head from their location to the offices of Blockbuster Video. They walked into Blockbuster Video, where the CEO of Blockbuster Video, John Antioco, sat awaiting the Netflix representatives for discussions about the future plans regarding the company. If you don't know what Blockbuster is, Blockbuster is a store that we used to go to on Friday nights and Saturday nights. It was like a library for movies. And if you don't know what a library is, I can't help you. So, but you walked into Blockbuster Video, and there were just a wall of, of video covers. And you'd see something you liked, and then you'd hope that there was a copy behind the thing. And if there wasn't, you had to find something else. And, and, uh, and we rented videos, and then we paid overdraft, late fees on videos. It was quite a thing. It was all DVDs, Blockbuster videos. They were everywhere. It's, you know, having a good Friday night was going to Blockbuster Video, getting a movie and watching it. At home. So, uh, so Blockbuster Video was huge at the time. Netflix was struggling. There's a meeting that takes place at Blockbuster Video Corporate, and they're having a conversation. And, and this conversation is going to turn into a scenario where Blockbuster Video is now interested in buying Netflix. So the CEO of Blockbuster Video in the year 2000 turns to this struggling startup Netflix and says, how much to buy the whole company? They think about it for a second, and they turn, and they say, well, we think our company's worth $50 million. And the story goes that John Antioco, who's, who's the CEO at the time, he can't keep a straight face. He starts to smirk 
and smile, recognizing that that amount of money is preposterous. So he turns them down. No way. You're never going to make it. You're not worth $50 million. Well, it's 22 years later. Blockbuster Video has a single store located in Bend, Oregon, that you can visit for nostalgia. And Netflix is worth, anybody have a guess? $300 billion. $300 billion. Timing is everything. In that particular moment, the CEO of Blockbuster liked their model. They liked the Friday night, come to the store, look at the model. They, they, they weren't interested in the streaming or the, the DVD to mail system. And so they made a decision to say, it's not right. We're not going to do that, right? Um, timing is everything. It's so important. And in the Gospel of John, that Jesus has been, throughout the Gospel of John, he's been asked, is now the time? Is now the time? Is now the time? Is now the time? And Jesus goes, no, now's not the time. He turns water into wine in the presence of his mother at a wedding, and his mother wants to know, is now the time? And Jesus says, now is not the time. Well, here we arrive in John chapter 12, and everything shifts. This whole sermon that we're going to look at is all about Jesus finally, finally saying, it's time. The time has come. Just before the text we're looking at was Palm Sunday. Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and people are freaking out. They're celebrating him declaring that he may be the Messiah. He may be the one who's going to come and liberate the Jewish people from their Roman oppressors. And, and, and into this moment, there's a lot of hype around Jesus for Lazarus is around and Lazarus is alive and Lazarus was once dead. And in verse 19, the verse right before the text we're getting into, you can hear the, the Pharisees are looking at one another and they're freaking out. And they say in verse 19, the, this, gather, this getting together is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world is starting to follow Jesus. This pivotal moment, the whole world is starting to follow Jesus. And then in verses 20 through 20, right after they complain that, here come these representatives of the whole world, these God-fearing Gentiles, and they show up and they, have, they just say this line. They say, we would very much like to see Jesus. And right, right there, you, you can see that, that right after they say, we would very much like to see Jesus, um, Philip and Andrew went and they go and tell Jesus, there are some people here who want to see you. I just, want to, I just want to pause and say that line this week, we, we, please show us Jesus. We would very much like to see Jesus is, is what we are about and our goal for what we do when we gather on Sunday. Our hope is that when we gather together, it's not that you would come and see any particular speaker or any particular band or any particular person other than Jesus. We want to show the world Jesus. That's what they want. They want to see Jesus. And Jesus gets this and launches into a sermon. So I'm going to break the sermon down into three pieces, all centered around time, because the heart of this text is really about time. And so Jesus says first that it's time for Jesus to be crucified. It's time for me to be crucified. That time has come. Secondly, it's time for Satan to be ejected. And third, it's time for us to embrace the light. 
So again, it's time for Jesus to be crucified. It's time for Satan to be ejected. It's time for us to embrace the light. First, it's time for Jesus to be crucified. Remember, Jesus has been saying the hour has not come, the hour has not come. And here in verse 23, you get that first change where Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come. Everything in the life of Jesus leads to this moment. We just got done celebrating Christmas, the incarnation, the coming of God into the world in the person of Jesus. Jesus came for what reason? He came to save his people from their sins. He came to die. This is the meaning behind Christmas. Christmas morning leads to a cross. His miracles lead to the cross. His teachings lead to the cross. Everything Jesus does is in preparation for this moment. Jesus is going to die. And he says it's time for him to be glorified, the Son of Man to be glorified. By glorified, Jesus is speaking of his passion, right? his march to the cross, his humiliation, his death, and his resurrection. Christ will be glorified at the cross. He glorified himself through miracles. If you read Jesus, he did all these incredible things. He helped the blind see, and he healed the lame, and he turned water into wine, and he walked on water, and he calmed the storm, and he cast out demons. He did amazing things and was glorified in all of it, but nothing will glorify him as much as the cross. Jesus came to die. Why? Well, he uses this illustration in verse 24. He says, truly, truly, hear this. A grain of wheat must fall and die. Imagine for a second you had two grains of wheat. And let's just imagine for a second you loved wheat. You were not gluten-free. You were gluten extra, right? You were like, yeah, I want all of the gluten. I love wheat. And imagine you had a seed, a kernel of wheat, and you loved this kernel of wheat. And you, you cared about it so much that you then took it and you, put, you bought a special jar for it. And you put the seed of wheat in the jar and you screwed on the lid. And then you put it on a mantle so that morning and night you could look at it and go, man, that's wonderful wheat. I love wheat. Wheat's so incredible. And someone came to you and said, hey, I've got an idea. I'm going to take your wheat out of the jar and I'm going to put it in the ground. I'm like, okay, well, where in the ground? I'm going to put it over there. Okay, just make sure I can see it. No, 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 I'm going to cover it with dirt. I'm going to soak it in water. Don't do that. I love my wheat. I love, what are you doing? I'm doing that because this feels very counterintuitive, but by taking that thing you love, putting it in the ground, it's going to create more wheat and more seeds and more life. And this is the analogy that Jesus uses. He says, putting it in the ground, putting the seed in the ground creates more seeds and more life. So it is true with Jesus that death, his death, is the engine of our lives. Death is the engine of life. I love guacamole. Anybody else love guacamole? 
Does that feel like a very California thing? I think it does. We have great avocados here. They come, we get great ones from Mexico. I love guacamole. My wife makes an incredible guacamole. Nathan Crow, one of our elders, makes a great guacamole. He uses serranos instead of jalapenos. You can ask him for the recipe. Nathan Crow, Nathan and Jenny Crow, when they got married, they had a bountiful feast at their wedding. They had incredible food. But the highlight for me was that Nathan Crow, at his own wedding, made a giant vat of his own guacamole at his own wedding. It was delicious. That's what I remember about the food. Nathan, Jenny, love you. Guacamole, incredible, Nathan, well done. Okay, love guacamole. But here's the interesting thing. I think about this often when I'm eating different foods, guacamole being one of them. To make guacamole, right, we, we take these, these items that are growing and have life, and we take them when they are at their peak, and we remove them from their life source. We chop them up. We fold them into a delicious mixture. We dip tortilla chips into it, and the death of the avocado and the death of the tomato, if you do that, or the onion or the lime juice, or the death of those things with tortilla chips gives us life. Death gives us life. And that's the point that Jesus is making. He's going to die so that we can be made alive spiritually. If you are spiritually dead, the way to be made alive is through Jesus' death. That's, that's what he says, that the way that we can be made alive is through his death. Maybe you're, you feel spiritually dead, distant from God. Maybe you kind of want to worship God or you want to know God, but you're not really sure if there's a God out there or who God is or what God is like. Maybe you feel this sense of spiritual sort of brokenness in you, disconnection, no harmony or no peace. Maybe you feel that kind of spiritual angst. The Bible says that that's a reflection of the fact that we are spiritually dead, but we can be made alive by receiving the death and resurrection of Christ who becomes our life. His death becomes our salvation. His death becomes our life. And I love this because what looks like the death of the seed, which looks like the demise of the seed, becomes its harvest. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is that it's always said, we point to crosses. We point to this place where people say, hey, that looks like your guy lost. You follow Jesus? We killed that guy. And as Christians, we go, yeah, 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 you did. That's where he won. They go, wait, what? No, no, you don't understand. When we kill your guy, that's when we win. And the Christians go, no, 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 no. See, because when you killed him, his death, his burial, his resurrection is what gives us life forever. And that's amazing. Jesus says that what looks like his loss is actually his victory. One seed produces many seeds. Now, now what does it look like to be a seed of Jesus? Right? Jesus is the seed that is buried and right, and then we become seeds of his. We become his fruit. What does it look like to be a seed of Jesus? Well, verse 25, he says, it has to do with how we treat our lives. There's, again, a same sort of counterintuitive intuitiveness there, right? Jesus says to be a seed of his means you got to hate your life. Now, very few, very few of you woke up this morning thinking, man, I hate my life. Thank God I'm a Christian. I hate my life. Almost none of us think that, right? 
What does it mean to hate your life? Did Jesus hate his life? Is that the example he set for us, that he hated his life? Well, no, no. If by what we mean by hating his life is that Jesus did not love his life so much that he sought to advance it and protect it at all costs, then yes, if that's what we mean, then yes, Jesus hated his life. And, and that's what this means, right? Loving your life means, loving your life means loving a life that is all about self-preservation. And Jesus is calling us to fall out of love with a life that is all about ourselves. Jesus is calling you and me today to fall out of love with a life that is all about us. Jesus did not hate himself. You should not hate yourself. But this self-advancement, self-preservation at all costs, Jesus died to that. And he calls us to do so as well. The selfish, me-first-at-all-cost kind of life. I mean, look around. Our world is obsessed with self-accumulation. Gotta have more. Gotta have more. Gotta have more. Our world is filled with self-preservation. Gotta stay safe. Gotta stay safe. Gotta stay safe. Gotta have more. It's self-focused. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. Those, that, that, that is rampant and everywhere in our world today. The idea that emerges that says what it's really about is survival of the fittest, maximizing pleasure. But Jesus talks not about survival of the fittest, but sacrifice of the fittest. You want to be a seed of Jesus? Be the kind of person who says, I'm not primarily about self-accumulation, self-preservation, self-focus, self-centeredness. Instead, I'm going to be an other-centered kind of person. I'm going to be a God-centered kind of person. God is at the center. Then I'm going to think about others and lastly, myself. And Jesus says to do that is to be the kind of person who hates life the way that it is lived today and to love the life that he would call truly life. 1 John puts it this way in 1 John 2.15, says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. So maybe you're going, oh, I want, I want that life. I'm, I'm tired of pursuing a self-centered life. It's destroying my marriage. It's breaking into my family. It's making my, my, my work very hard because I'm just thinking about myself. I just think about myself all the time. It, maybe you're feeling that sense and you say, I want to be a part of that. Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 26. He's, how do you do it? You follow him. Walk as closely as you can to Jesus. If you want that kind of life, Jesus says, where I am, my servant will also be. If, it's not, man, Christian faith is simultaneously so simple and so difficult. Simple enough for a child to understand, difficult for the most passionate adult to live the rest of their life struggling to live. How do I? Live the life that is truly life. 
by being faithfully Christian, by living a good life, by being generous, by telling people about Jesus, by loving your family well. Parents, you do this when you warn your children, when you teach your children, when you exhort your children, when you correct your children, when you show kindness to them and grace to them, when you exercise discipline towards them, when you make Christ the center of your home, when you make Christ the center of your work, when you make Christ the center of your passions, when you do that, that's what it looks like. When you stay close to Christ, that's what it looks like to follow Him, to live the life that He's called you to live. And Jesus says the result of that is to be honored. To be honored. He says that the Father will honor the one who, who serves him. Who doesn't want to be honored? Right? Don't we love honor? Right? Don't we all kind of want to be honored in some way? Isn't honor all kind of what we're all about? If Jesus is telling the truth, serving and following Jesus results in a greater honor than you could ever find in this life. What are we after in this life? Nobel Prizes? Maybe some of you? Far more likely, given our location, for you to be interested in one of the four. An Emmy, an Oscar, a Tony, a Grammy. Do you know there's people who get all four of those? There's people who get all four of those. Only 16 people in the entire world have ever gotten an Emmy, an Oscar, a Tony, and a Grammy. It's called the EGOT. 16 people have ever gotten the EGOT. It's one of the highest honors you can get in the entertainment industry to check all four of those boxes. And so some people would think, man, if I got, a, if I got an EGOT or if I got that award at my job or if I got honored in my school, if I got valedictorian or I got whatever it is, we all look for ways of honor. And, and Jesus, if he's telling the truth, here's what he's saying. He's saying that if you serve him and you make him your priority, you will receive a greater honor than any person could ever receive on earth. There's no honor that this world could possibly offer you. I want you to see this and to know this, to chew on this, to write this down. There's no honor that anywhere on this earth that could possibly compare to the honor that you will receive as an eternal reward on that day if you keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, what honor are you after? I just love, there's an old interview you can watch if you want to. It features Matt Damon after he was one of the youngest people to ever win an Oscar for uh, when he wrote, him and Ben Affleck wrote, A Goodwill Hunting. And he talks on the Graham Norton show about how he felt when he was in his early 20s having received that Oscar. And he says he brought that statue home and he sat it on his table and he looked at it. And his first thought was, man, I'm so glad I didn't work my entire life for this. Because he just looked at this honor. I mean, there are people out there that would do anything for an Oscar. And here's a guy who won it going, this can't be it. This cannot be what satisfies. The counterintuitive life is not easy. It's not easy for me. I know it's not easy for you. And it would be difficult for Jesus as well. As Jesus is looking to the cross saying, it's time to go to the cross 
In verse 27 and 28, he talks about how difficult it is for him personally. Do you ever think about how Jesus personally was sort of weighing the difficulty of his own death? He does not see death as friendly or as desirable or as good. Jesus sees death as the final enemy to be faced. He gives a natural human reaction when Jesus says that he feels troubled. He says, my soul is troubled in verse, 30, in verse 27. Like the psalmist in Psalm 42 who says, my soul is downcast within me. Jesus feels turmoil. His heart is troubled. Jesus has a heart and a soul, and he is troubled within the very center of who he is. But here's what I hope you see and I hope you know. Jesus is going to say in a few weeks, he's going to tell his disciples that they shouldn't be troubled. He's going to say to them, let, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is troubled, but he's going to turn to them and say, you don't be troubled. Well, why? Well, here's why. Because Jesus is troubled and will die, you don't need to be troubled. Because he was troubled, you don't need to be troubled. He says, now my soul is troubled. He's shaken and agitated at his core by the circumstances around him. Some of you right now are shaken and agitated at the circumstances around you. Some of you feel this deep sense of, of turmoil in you. You've got stresses that sort of the, the holidays only exacerbated. You're, maybe some of you are looking back at the Christmas season going, thank God that's over because it only highlighted my loneliness. It only highlighted my frustration. It only highlighted how troubled I feel. I hope that you would know this morning that Jesus was once troubled too, that he knows what it's like to be troubled that he identifies with you in your difficulties. But look what Jesus says. He says, will I say in the heart of him being troubled, will I say, will my prayer be, God, get me out of here? No, he says. He says that his prayer instead will be, glorify your name. Look at verse 27. He says, will I say, will I say Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Which means this. In the face of my struggles, God, help me to do everything you want me to do and to do it in the right way so that you might be honored. Now, can you imagine if that was our prayers? If our prayers when we were troubled and we were struggling, if our prayers were, God, in the face of what I'm facing, help me to do everything you want me to do and to do it in the right way so that you would be honored. This should be our prayer. And Jesus says that, and as soon as he says that, Bam! There's an interruption into Jesus' sermon. His sermon gets interrupted by the voice of God. Verses 28 through 30, God speaks. God's voice is audible. And God says to Jesus, the Father says to the Son, I have glorified your name. I have glorified it in your ministry. In all that you've been doing, I have glorified it, and I will glorify my name in your death and resurrection. God only speaks three times in 
the Gospels, only once in the Gospel of John. God speaks at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus is baptized, the heavens open, God speaks. And here's what God says. He looks at Jesus and says, this is my son. I love him. I am proud of him. Then again at the transfiguration, God speaks. And what does he say? This is my son. I am so proud of him. Listen to him. And then here in the Gospel of John, God speaks. I have glorified my name in you. I have and I will do it again. God points us to Jesus. God wants our eyes focused on Jesus. And some people go like, man, was that thunder? Nah, I think it was an angel. Some people debate. But, then, but Jesus says, no, 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 listen, listen, listen. You have to understand, Jesus says, this voice is for you. How? How is it for us? Well, Jesus wants you to hear, and he wants you to understand, and he wants you to know. If you want to glorify God, if you want to follow God, if you want to know God, if you want to serve God, if you want God to be the most important thing in your life, there is no better way than to celebrate, honor, and revere Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's, that's what it means to get close to the heart of God. There's no better way than giving your time, your attention to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's time for Jesus to die. My second and third points are going to be a bit more quick. So this is the second point. It's also time for Satan to be ejected. In verse 31, Jesus says, uh, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, is the, now the prince of this world will be driven out. Sometimes we think to ourselves, wait, hold on a second. I thought the judgment is coming later. Well, that's true. The judgment is coming later. But Jesus on the cross is going to enact judgment at the exact same time that he is going to offer the world salvation. When we look at the cross, we see both the judgment of God and we also see salvation from God. At the cross, Jesus is going to judge sin and wickedness. And sin and wickedness at the cross are going to be exposed and condemned. And at the cross, at the exact same time, the world, you and me included, are going to be offered salvation by faith. At the cross, there's going to be this great transfer of power where the power of sin and death, the evil and wicked one, the devil himself, will be dealt with at the cross. And at the cross, the devil will be dethroned, defeated, and shamed. Thrown out from over us. We don't talk a ton about the devil, but Jesus does, and so we will. The devil still works today in the world. I know that you know that and experience that. The devil still seduces us and still tempts us. The devil still accuses us. That voice that tells you you could never be forgiven, that's not the voice of God. That is the voice of the devil. That voice that tells you that you're the worst and that, and that God has given up on you, that is the voice of the devil. That voice that causes you to think so lowly of yourself and never gets you to a point of rejoicing in Christ, that's the voice of the devil. 
The devil still works today, but the devil, since the cross, has no ultimate power over you if you are in Christ Jesus. I love the way that the Heidelberg Catechism says it. The Heidelberg Catechism asks the first question, which is, what is your only comfort in life and death? We sang a song a few moments ago that was pulled straight out of that catechism. The answer to the Heidelberg Catechism number one, which is, what is our only comfort in life and death? The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and this is the important part, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. The devil is no longer authoritative in any way in your life if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have believed in Jesus, the devil, who still may tempt you, who still may seduce you, who still may whisper to you, has no authority over you. The image here is, is that the devil was once over you, oppressing you, but now in Christ, you, you are now above, liberated from the power of, of the devil. So, so this sense that we sometimes get, which is like, I'm in a battle between God and the devil, or maybe you grew up with cartoonish images of an angel on one shoulder and other. If you are in Christ, that is not the image. They are not equally powerful. You're not, you're not just stuck between authority to God or following the devil. The reality is, if you are in Christ, the devil has no authority or power over you, and you need to know this and claim this in Christ in order to walk in the victory that you long to walk in. Jesus has come to deal with with the devil. He speaks so as much. I've recently, do you ever notice that we talk about this a lot? I talk about this a lot. I think about it a lot. Some people talk about the devil a ton. That's all they talk about. Other Christians never talk about the devil. And I was recently reading about how often should we think about or talk about the devil? And then I love this. I love this. I forget where I read this, but, um, but uh, this is not my idea, but I love it. So I'm going to share it, which is uh, the Lord's prayer talks about uh, the devil, right, uh, the evil one, one-sixth of the prayer deals with temptation in the devil. And so maybe one-sixth of our Christian life should think about the devil. Like modeling our life based on the Lord's Prayer. One-sixth of our time, which is not no time, but it's not all the time. Because the liar, the accuser, the one who tells you that you can't be forgiven, the one who says that you're terrible and you always will be, the one who says that you're a failure and you always will be, the one who calls you to question God's love for you, God's forgiveness for you, the one who whispers into your ear is no longer over you because he was defeated. Amen? Do you see Jesus say that? Do you see? I'm not making this up. Like he says that. You'd be like, Trevor, when did you do that? It's right here. He says it. And he says, he says, when does that happen? Verse 32, when he's hoisted up, right? He's talking about the cross. When he's raised onto the cross, when he's raised from the dead, and he's raised to the highest heaven. When th that's when he ha Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross. That's when he's going to eject the devil. And that's when he's going to draw people to himself. When does Jesus draw people to himself? When he is lifted up on the cross. When we point to people 
uh, point people to him as the one who has lived, died, and then raised again to new life. He is still drawing his people. Some of you are here, and you're here this morning, and you're kind of interested in Christian faith, but you have not committed your life to Jesus. You haven't received him as your Savior. You haven't believed in him. But you're feeling and sensing that Jesus is after you. He's been drawing you. You find him compelling you find him sort of luring you in with his love and his grace and his forgiveness, with his authority and his power and his teaching, Jesus still draws people to himself today. The question you have to ask yourself is, will you receive him? And that leads me to my third and final point this morning, which is, it's time for you to embrace the light. Well, after Jesus talks about being lifted up onto the cross, people go, wait, 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 wait. You just came in uh, on, a, on a donkey. Wait, you just came in and, and you're the, as the Messiah. What are you talking about you're going to die? That, that, that's not a thing. They react to this because they sense his messianic claims, but they can't put it together. It doesn't make any sense to them. Later on, the Apostle Paul will say that the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. But Jesus will answer their questions by talking about light. Jesus is the light of the world. And he will say to them, I am only here for now. So while I'm here for now, cling to me. Because the darkness is real. And that darkness which is going to be defeated is going to fight like hell for you. Some of you are like, I know exactly what it's like to feel the pain and difficulty of the darkness fighting like hell for me. And what does Jesus say? Cling to the light, he says. Believe in me and become a child of light. Become a part of the family of light. You know, the Bible begins by saying, God said, let there be light. And Jesus, in his last public sermon, ends with, let there be belief in this light. All of life begins with the light of God. And Jesus is asking and inviting us to give greater trust to him today. Because the good news that we get to live on the other side of is that Jesus is present wherever he is preached. Jesus is here this morning. He's here. We're in his word. We can hear him. He's here with us by his spirit. Whenever his word is opened and he is being proclaimed, he is present. And therefore, while Jesus is here, I hope this morning I've been praying that you would sense that God is here this morning and that God is is, is calling you towards the light, that you would become children of the light. So let me ask you this morning, will you rely on him? Will you believe in him? Will you follow him? Will you get close to him? Will you serve him? Will you make him the center? Will you learn to abandon the self-preservation, self-accumulation, 
Will you learn to hate your sin, to resist the darkness? Will you claim the victory that's available for you in the defeat of Satan? Will you be cleansed today of all of your sin, all of your iniquities, all of your trespasses? Well, I believe that some of you will. Some of you already have been. But we gather today together to hear this word again and to be reminded that it's time. Timing is everything. Later on, the CEO of Blockbuster would conclude that it was the greatest mistake he ever made, letting Netflix walk out of there without accepting yes to a $50 million deal. I can guarantee you the greatest mistake you can ever make in this life is choosing not to cling to Jesus. Make this the time to do so. Make this year, this moment, this day the time to do so. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for this teaching of yours. We thank you for the way that it liberates us, reminding us that Satan does not have any power over us anymore. You defeated him on the cross. We thank you that we are reminded that death is the engine of life, that your death is what gives us life and gives us salvation. We thank, we thank you that you are the light of the world. We, want to long, we long to walk in the light and away from the darkness. Lord, Lord, give us the ability to do that in and through your son Jesus, through, in his authority, in his power, in his love. Help us to see him as glorious. Help him to see the sacrifice that he made. To those of us who are suffering, God, would you help us in this moment? Would you help us to see that Christ knows what it's like to suffer? May we pray the prayer that he prayed which is not just, God, get me out of this, but God, be glorified in this by helping me to do everything you want me to do and to do it in the right way. God, I pray for our families. I pray for the families in this church that this would be the year where they would make you the center. Lord, I pray for those who are stuck and struggling in sins. Some, of, some people have, they sinned last year, they've been sinning every year, and they wanted this year to be the year when they broke free from that sin, and they're already struggling again, which then leads them to feel like they're just a failure and that there is no hope. Lord, I pray that they would see and know hope and victory in Christ this year. Lord, I pray for the husbands and for the fathers in our church, that they would love their wives well and serve their children well. I pray for the wives in this church and the mothers in this church that they would love their husbands well and serve their children well. Lord, I pray for those who are not married. I pray that they would honor and glorify you with their whole lives in their friendships and their relationship with their family and the way that they honor you by serving and being a part of this church. Lord, we long to be a people of the light. We long to serve you. And Lord, there are all kinds of strangleholds on our lives that keep us from doing that. Lord, help us to see that we've been set free from so many in and through Jesus by the work of your spirit. Help us to live in to the glorious light. Help us to make now the time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.